You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. It's that time of the year. Uh, it's the holidays. And there's all kinds of good stuff. There's family, there's connection, there's kindness, there's gratitude. But there's always the stuff that never got resolved before. So it's normal for there to be stress. And it's stress that is hackable. So I thought you might benefit from having some techniques, some tools that work specifically during the holidays to ground all of that crap out. (laughs) So I curated some conversations for you. Uh, Susan David studies the science of emotions and what to do with them. And she says that you really shouldn't fix difficult emotions through that positive thinking and chasing happiness and kind of putting on the, the fake face of it. Instead, she teaches you how to shift gears and do what she calls emotional agility. And then there's uh, Joan Rosenberg, who talks about being in charge of your own emotions. And she helps you go through eight specific emotional states. And you're going to like what Susan and Joan have. So you can hack your emotions, have better holidays, better time with your family and your friends, and shut down the garbage feelings. It can be done. Today's guest is someone that I really think you're going to love. Susan Davids, a PhD, award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist who wrote a bestseller on emotional agility. That's actually the title based on 20 years of research into the psychological skills that you and me and all of us need to actually win when change is happening. And bad news, change always happens whether there's um, a virus or not. Change happens every single day. So basically, resilience is the core of being bulletproof and emotional agility is the core of, of really being resilient. So Susan, welcome to the show. I'm really happy you're here. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here as well. Now, you're a CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology, but tell me, emotional agility, you wrote a book on the topic. How do you describe that to someone in an elevator? It's like, what do you do? Because I, I don't know that I could describe it. I'm pretty good at that stuff. At its most basic level, emotional agility is about the capacity to be with ourselves That includes our difficult thoughts and emotions and stories and past experiences in a way that's compassionate and curious and that doesn't hold us back from being the people that we most want to be. Because often we get stuck in our thoughts, our emotions and our stories, and we aren't living in a way that's intentional and values congruent. And so it's about these different aspects, the the being with ourselves healthily and being able to move sometimes even when it's uncomfortable towards things that matter to us. Uh, So today's guest is Joan Rosenberg, who's a master clinician, trainer, consultant. And one of the reasons I have her on the show today is that her new book called 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. But I have her on because of one word in the title. And the word is lasting. And what Joan is focused on is how do you create that lasting resilience, which is one of the most precious things you can have. Joan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dave. Thrilled to be here. Let's jump right in with what is emotional mastery the way you've discovered it? You know, think of emotional mastery as, actually, I I would surrender by a couple different things. One is great emotional self-regulation as such that you are being responsive as opposed to reactive in the world. It's not turning them off at all. It's actually being present to them in a way that doesn't disrupt your function. 
so that so that rather than rather than feeling like you're falling apart or you're you're um, unraveling or you have to shut down, what you're able to do is actually to stay present to what you're experiencing in the moment, and then uh, not not do anything to try to get away from it. Not no avoidance, no distraction, no disconnection, and you move through it. So, what's an example of a way an emotion might might get in your way? Just in in a in a normal day, with the way you're talking about these things get in your way, how do you know it's an emotion versus someone acting like a jerk? I, you know, let me give you an everyday kind of an example. I, one that I mentioned in the book, and it's having been, I was driving and somebody hit me from behind. And in those moments, I could have gotten out of the car and been really furious and angry and, you know, spilled that anger in mean ways all over the person that bumped into me. And in the moments that I had before I got out of the car, I was able to go, look, she didn't want to hit me. I didn't want to be hit. But I have a high value of and want to hold integrity of, in terms of myself, a different way, in terms of being kind and well-intentioned. So when I got out of the car, I was able to kind of use that to be know that I was frustrated and angry and disappointed that I had to deal with all the stuff relating to the, the accident but that I could go back and say, let's just exchange information. You didn't want to hit me. I didn't want to be hit. Let's kind of just deal with it and move on. And then I could, when I left, then I could deal with my own feelings of frustration and disappointment, but not splash them all over her. We're so concerned about what we're feeling that it's almost like we're carrying a stack of books so close to ourselves, all of our emotions tugged into us, that we are struggling to connect with the people we love, our family, our children, uh, support systems that might be in place. And then the other cost of brooding is we know that when people brood, it actually takes up a huge amount of cognitive resource. So we're so focused on what's going on for us that we actually become unable to problem solve or to find a pathway forward. And if there's ever a time when you might need to find a pathway forward, it's when you're feeling stuck at home and the world has been ripped from underneath you. So we've got to be able to reconnect with ourselves so that we can move forward in the world. And it's absolutely very often done with the way or the, the perspective that one is taking is, is often, I'm trying to figure this out. Um, but it's getting so stuck in the experience that it, you actually are becoming victimized by the it, experience. It's the wallowing in it instead of grieving and moving on. Yes. Okay. You talk about mastering difficult feelings. We talked about that a little bit. It, it's kind of how you respond to them. But lasting confidence. There are a lot of people who do not have confidence that's even fleeting. What are the tools from your 90 seconds to a life you love that specifically are around getting that lasting confidence into someone's life? Great question. The, the, my approach is centered on helping people experience and move through eight unpleasant feelings. All right, tell me these eight. Sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. My approach is centered on helping people experience and move through eight unpleasant feelings. All right, tell me these eight. 
sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. And what, so why these eight? Are they the most common feeling outcomes to things not turning out the way that we need or the way that we want? So I'm not talking about trauma and I'm not talking about tragedy here, though those feelings may show up in those circumstances. But it's the everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way we want or, or want or need. What I found, again, is that if someone didn't, weren't able to experience and move through those unpleasant feelings very well, they didn't feel very capable in life. They just didn't feel capable of handling life. Okay. And that so much of developing confidence has to do with the belief that we can, we can basically handle something. So, and most people have it confused. It's the, the, the notion is that I'm confident, I'll be confident and then I'll go take a risk to do something. And then they never have the confidence, to your point. Or I, I'll have the confidence and then I'll go give that presentation or I'll go speak up or I'll say the thing to my partner that I'm afraid to say. Okay. It doesn't work that way. It actually works in the reverse. As you speak or through speaking, you develop confidence. Through speaking. Through speaking. Or as you take action or take some kind of a risk or continue to take those risks, you develop the confidence. So it's the willingness to kind of put yourself in situations where you could experience one or more of those eight unpleasant feelings and find out that you can experience them, move through them, and then keep going. Okay. Back to our guest who's saying, I just lost my job. I have no money. My spouse is a brooder or bottler and I'm not. And like, screw chasing happiness. What do I do right now? What do you tell them? So a couple of things. Uh, first, I'm going to sound even more like a Buddhist right now because I'm going to say, you know, what is what is the power, you know, of really showing up to that emotion um, that when you are pushing difficult emotions aside, as we've already explored, you know, you engaging in some kind of denial. And with that often then comes other coping strategies that compound our problems even further. When we are pushing aside difficult emotions, often what we are doing as well is we might be oversleeping, um, we might be abusing alcohol. Uh, there are a whole lot of things that we might be doing. You know, these then become these addictive uh, short-term coping strategies that again compound because when you come out of the situation now not only do you not have a job but you don't have a job and your relationship is broken down so you know one thing that I think is just really powerful is and I talk about this in my book is the power of just showing up to the fact that this is tough like you know we live in a world that almost over proposes or overvalues this idea that we are all in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where we've constantly got to be tough on ourselves. And there's such power in just showing up to the pain of that experience. Like, this is tough. So showing up compassionately is powerful. But the other aspect of this is what I've been calling uh, – in these times, but I also talk about in my book, is gentle acceptance. And what do I mean by gentle acceptance? It is what it is. It is what it is. What I am experiencing now in my work, uh, 
but also previously is that the more we try to control what is uncontrollable, the more we fight the world, the greater our level of suffering. And so gentle acceptance is basically, it is what it is. Once people have an awareness that it's the bodily sensation that they're trying to avoid, if they want to be active and motivated to actually, in quotes, kind of heal more quickly, they'll work right away to start using that awareness. So it's uh, so the shift can actually happen very, very quickly. I Somebody had my book material for two days mm-hmm. and used it to work with themselves about going into a social networking function that they hated and that they always felt like an imposter in. And what she did is she ran through the eight feelings, tried to identify where it was in her body, noticed that it was vulnerability that was the hardest for her, imagined the scenario going into it, and then handled herself differently when she actually got in the room two days later. And her husband said to her, he'd never seen her so social before. So as quickly as, as quickly as you put it into play is as quickly as the changes start. Okay. What are the words in your list of eight things? And, and that maps very nicely to my understanding of these things, the work that I, I do with neurofeedback um, is vulnerability. Right. And for me, years ago, that was a core thing where, okay, like I, I also had lots of bullying, right? And so you learn like, don't be vulnerable, right? It's not safe to be vulnerable. And you learn pretty much if someone says you might be vulnerable, the easiest thing to do is just to smack them around a little bit. Um, which well, is why a lot of bullies or bullied become bullies because you get hyperreactive. So that vulnerability thing is, is basically a lot of what Lewis House, uh, who's been on the show and is, is a friend, a guy I really respect and admire. He talks about, you know, I'm a pro football player, but the problem is being vulnerable. And I'm like, I'm a computer hacker, CEO of Silicon Valley, whatever thing. The problem is being vulnerable. So it's, it's clearly a problem for men from some aspect, but women have different vulnerabilities that they're concerned about. What's the difference in the types of vulnerability that, that affect men versus women? Uh, interesting question, because uh, I also talk about two different kinds of vulnerability in the book. The non-conscious is, in essence, all of us feeling vulnerable all of the time. Because we're going to die. We're going to die, and anything could happen to any one of us at any given point. We could get a phone call about someone being ill or that mm-hmm. they've passed. We could, we could be subject to an earthquake, a tornado, a fire, a, fl- a flood. It doesn't matter. Or, or human man-made disasters, man-made violence against each other. So, it, so at any point, any of that could happen to any one of us. The idea is to keep an awareness of that at a low level, just so that we, because that's the survival instinct, right? The second is what I call conscious vulnerability, and that's when we choose to be vulnerable. So we're choosing into taking risks. We're choosing into learning a new skill. We're choosing into asking somebody out for a date. We're, whatever it is, we're choosing to put ourselves in a state where we could be hurt or learn something. Okay. And, it, and that's conscious vulnerability. Now, the beauty of it for me, Dave, is that one can, and to me, being vulnerable in those ways, as you're describing, is, is our greatest strength. We are at our greatest strength when we choose to be vulnerable. And the way we manage it is to be able to tolerate and move through those other seven feelings. 
Interesting. So vulnerability sort of is the last one or and it's, first one? to me, it's but the most unique, the most unique. Okay. Because one could experience vulnerability as weakness, which I don't consider it or the greatest strength. So imagine someone's feeling really stuck and you say to them, you feeling really stuck. What do you think you need to do about the situation? The situation could be a marriage that's not working or I want to start this business or anything. And the person says, I don't know, I'm stuck. And you say to them, well, what are some ideas that you've got about how to get unstuck? I don't know. That's why I'm having the conversation with you. That's why I'm talking to you because I don't have any ideas. Then you say to them, I want to bring another person into this room. Think of the person that you know that is the wisest, most caring, loving person who has your best interests at heart. What does that person advise you to do? And this individual that I'm having the conversation with says, ah, they advise me to do this. They advise me to do that. Now, isn't it fascinating? It's the same person, but simply by bringing a different perspective. And I describe some of these skills in emotional agility, just by bringing a different perspective an observer perspective into the context, we generate solutions. And perspective taking is powerful. Perspective taking is the bedrock of empathy. Journaling is very, very powerful. Um, You know, what I described to you earlier about my experience in journaling after my dad died was that for the first time I felt almost this invited to show up to the emotions. And it's really interesting when you look at journaling, um, there is this fascinating research that shows that when people journal, and it, it doesn't need to be this brooding journaling, you know, I'm writing at a cafe for 15 hours every day about how I feel. It can actually be, you know, 20 minutes a day for three days. We have done in psychology a number of experiments on this, looking at, for instance, when people are laid off from their jobs, the example that you gave earlier. And you might have, uh, you know, people who are laid off. One group of people is asked to just write about the cars passing on the street. The other group of people is asked to write about their feelings about being laid off and what this means and the stress that it's brought about for them. And what we start finding is that the people who write about these emotionally salient and difficult experiences, that over time, those individuals are more likely to be rehired quicker. They are more likely to find their way through the situation. And so it kind of begs the question, you know, what is it that is happening when one journals? And by the way, it doesn't have to be journaling. Sometimes speaking to a really wise friend who helps you to see a situation differently can be powerful. You look at you look at people who write about emotionally difficult experiences. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be a difficult experience. It can even be, you know, I'm starting a business and I'm excited about it, but I'm scared. Okay, so you can even write about exciting things. The the 
the embodiment here is that it needs to be something that is emotionally salient for you. It's emotionally evocative. And so what we find is six months later, the people who've done these little bits of journaling tend to be um, more likely to have move towards their goals. They have better mental health, better well-being. And so it starts really to speak to these ideas of emotional agility, which is that pushing the emotions aside doesn't work, going to them, but processing them in healthy ways does. And what is it about the journaling? What is it? So when we look at this journaling, it's the people who are not being Pollyanna. They're not just being, oh, I'm looking for the silver lining here. This is all wonderful. Those people tend not to do well. The people who do well through the journaling are the people who've used positive emotion words, yes, but they've also used some negative emotion words. They've described what it is that they are feeling, and they're starting over time to generate a sense of insight. So they'll say things like, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't invite it, but I've learned from it, or this is a new way of being that I'm seeing. I've gone through your book and mm-hmm. you talk about you know, six steps to reclaiming your personal power. And these are powerful psychology steps. Uh, you're distilled from what you would do in therapy. If I want to really put this into practice though, I mean, am I going to spend an hour a night uh, you know, going through the book, going through the, well, that's six steps on page 149. And then I'm going to go, you know, <laughs> probably, I, I, the, how much probably, the chapter, probably the chapter one we'll spend the most time with is chapter eight. Okay. Where where it involves someone where I'm asking people to take a look at their life stories. So where where the biggest healing needs to occur when we've been hurt by others in in ways that we didn't deserve. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And in fact, I talk about it as moving through grief, and it's grieving through what we got and didn't deserve, which is the bad stuff, or grieving over what we deserved and didn't get think the praise and recognition or the good stuff, grieving over what never was, the kind of life circumstances we grew up in, grieving over what isn't now, and grieving over what may never be. And then I, then I ask people to go through a, a set of questions. It's probably nine or at least nine or 12 questions in that chapter where I'm asking people to take a look at uh, the impact and the meaning that those life experiences had on them at the time they occurred, as they grew up, as they aged, and now. And then and then I think that helps people finally move to a place of forgiveness. But it's what I call making sense of your life story. You can journal, or one can journal, in a way that's brooding, that's just venting, venting, yeah, venting. Yeah, okay. Okay, and so think of, uh, think of, for instance, you upset because you've had a fight with someone, and so you got with your girlfriend or, you know, with someone and you have a big fat moan over a cup of coffee about why this person that you've had a fight with is so terrible. Okay. What you're doing there is you're no longer brooding. You are co-brooding. Okay. You literally are like brooding with someone about your mother-in-law or someone who you don't like. So this is co-brooding. And what's really fascinating is that again, once you've co-brooded with someone, You tend to like that person better because they got you, they gave you a time to vent, but you actually feel worse about the person that you've had the argument with. And it might be your spouse or your mother-in-law, and you actually come back to that situation with worse behaviors. And so what we want to be aware of 
and this is this very consistent line that runs through my work is that when you're doing your journaling or when you're leaning on someone for social support, that you are not just brooding with the person. There's there's this intent that comes through it of being curious, of trying to understand, of trying to work things out. And so when you asked me for my definitional aspect of emotional agility, and I said, it's being compassionate, it's being curious, and it's being courageous, because the curiosity part is the, what is the emotion telling me? Um, how can I be curious about this thing that I'm facing? And it's that that helps us to unhook. I, I just realized we never close the loop on vulnerability. Ah, okay. We talked about the two types of vulnerability, just being vulnerable because you're going to die and being willing to fail. But how do men and women experience vulnerability differently on average? You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me around that, Dave, is that a woman feels vulnerable on a physical level. Yeah. I would have guessed that. That is different from, and that's a day-to-day experience. Just Uh, physical size. Yeah, an awareness that a woman could be hurt. Mm -hmm. And more often by men than women. Yeah. but And so on on a day-to-day basis, it's a physical survival issue. In addition to how someone then gets treated emotionally. There's a stereotype, and it's one that feels like it's based on on reality, that women are oftentimes more comfortable with being emotionally vulnerable than men are, at least in Western cultures. Where does that come from? You know, I think it's socialized a lot. Probably there are some differences on a biological level as well. Uh, I've not had the experience of testosterone to know what it feels like to have it. So, so, but I, but I'm sure that there are some literal biological differences and, and, and the socialization that we go through is very different. It's like you're told to man up, you're told boys don't cry. You're told, I mean, we can go on and on about the, all the constraints. Okay. That comes down to gender stereotypes and stuff like that. Totally. All right, and that can ultimately lead to men being less emotional, less emotionally willing to face emotional vulnerability, and women maybe knowing they have more physical vulnerability than men. Uh, so I, I guess uh, you, you just know it's there; it's all the time, like the survival vulnerability that everyone has, but it's amped up for women, correct? Just by virtue of physiology. Yes. Okay. Um, that that makes that makes really good sense, but maybe because that's present, maybe there's more comfort on the emotional side. I'm just making that up, but uh, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Why is it, why is it such an issue for men? And it may just come down to the primate brains and, you know, well, you know what? And- men, men are taught to be shame. I mean, they're, they're shamed for having an experience of emotion. Uh, and, and so if they show the vulnerable side of emotion, think mm. sadness, disappointment, embarrassment anything on your list of eight <laughs> yeah then then they shut down on that okay but so you know one of the things i talk about in uh, chapter four kind of the distractions chapter is is how it, whether you use a default feeling and bear with me on the stereotype for a moment sure but men will default to anger sure and channel all the other unpleasant feelings through anger and that that's where it comes out and women will often default to the other side. They'll de- default to sadness or disappointment, and you'll see the tearfulness, but you won't see them expressing anger or frustration. So that so part of it is allowing both men and women 
to scan for the full range of what they're experiencing and actually express it more truthfully rather than just channeling it through the default feeling. What is it that I'm doing when I'm having a tough day? Uh, I really, you know, I think what's become my mantra is it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. I think that's been really powerful for me. Another aspect that I'm really trying to focus on is to um, let go. And sometimes letting go is a choice. You know, it's it's let go of what I cannot control. I cannot control uh, whether, you know, some politician says something or doesn't say something in their speech. Um, I can't control whether people in my neighborhood are, you know, using N95 masks or not wearing masks or using, there's so much that I can't control. And I am trying to be really conscious of choosing to let go of what I can't control. So that's been really important. Within that, there's some things that I can control. Um, You know, the, the basic building block of our ability to be agile and effective uh, is actually born of our health and our well-being, and that includes things like getting enough sleep and eating effectively. And so, you know, these things cannot fall by the wayside during this time. They're critical, and this is a long-term thing that we need to be doing. And then a third is is how am I trying to connect with my children during this time? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. So I think that there's all of these principles, and I've got a whole chapter in my book, Emotional Agility, about dealing with our children in a way that's emotionally agile, because I think our erring as parents is to, you know, jump in. And and if a child comes home from school and says, you know, mommy, uh, Jack wouldn't play with me today, or Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party, now I'm not going to invite him. What you're seeing is a child that has no space between stimulus and response. The child is fused, um, they're hooked. And so our erring as a parent is to say, oh, Jack didn't play with you today, or Jack didn't invite you to his birthday party. Don't worry, I'll play with you. Let's go bake cupcakes. Let's, I'll phone Jack's parents and figure this out. So our erring done with really good intentions is to jump in and to try help our children to be happy. But what are we doing? When we do that, we are signaling to the child, again, that there are good and bad emotions. We are signaling that being happy is a good emotion, but that sadness or frustration is a bad emotion. Our children are going to be traveling through life where the pandemic might be one of a number of pandemics. 
experience. They will one day lose their job or it will be automated or their hearts will be broken. And so we need to give our children the skills to help them again to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. So when we telegraph to our children, oh, don't worry, I'll jump in and I'm going to, you know, force happiness, we actually take away our children's capacity to learn and experience and practice emotional agility skills. So what I'm trying to do with my kids is when my kids are having a tough day is to not just jump in. You know, if you feel upset because someone didn't invite you to their birthday party, that child is feeling sad. And as a parent showing up to that sadness and and saying, you know, that that's like that's tough. That feels that feels bad. This is powerful for children. It helps to give them a sense of secure attachment that they can feel and be what they need to feel and be, and they will still be loved. So that's the showing up part. The second part, we spoke about labeling emotions. So helping your child to label their emotion. The child who says, I'm angry because Jack didn't invite me to the birthday party, it actually sounds like you sad or disappointed or you felt rejected. So that's the the labeling, the helping to step out. And then third, when our children are going through difficult experiences, is helping them to understand their own values, their own why, because this is the moral compass that will help them in a world that is going to need them to have a moral compass. And so these are the questions that might be, you know, you, you said because Jack didn't invite you to his birthday party and I might be tempted to tell you, well, you have to invite him to yours because you're inviting everyone else and you can't leave that one child out. But what I could be asking instead is, it sounds like you feel really sad that you've been rejected and that friendship is really important to you. What does being a good friend look like? How could you be a good friend in this situation? How can you be a good friend to others? And you're doing something so powerful because, you know, one day your child is, you know, going to turn 16 or 26 or 36 and someone is going to come to the child and say, I've got this great idea. Let's let the air out of the school principal's tires, you know, car tires. And your child's going to be going, ah, on the one hand, I want to feel accepted. But on the other hand, I have the sense of disquiet. And I'm now practiced in noticing my disquiet. And I'm also practiced in creating space so that I'm not just acting on my impulse of what feels good in the moment. And I'm able to get a sense of who I want to be. And so, you know, these are these foundational skills. Coming back to this evidence base you were talking about, we know that children who are able to label their emotions more effectively are able to self-regulate and that these studies, you know, are predictive decades down the track. Wow. That's so powerful. What I'm trying to do with my, in a long answer to your very short question, I'm trying to show up to them. I'm trying to show up to them. How do you foresee wisdom changing as you age? 
How do I for my wisdom yeah, or someone else's yeah, your, wisdom? Your wisdom. How's it going to change? What are you going to do with it? Uh, for me, to, uh, I look at life as a learning. It, it's it doesn't matter what I do. Everything is a portal for learning or an opportunity for learning. So, what I in terms of an attitude that I hold, it's trying to make use of even the difficult experiences I might go through as a learning experience. So, so for me, my intent or my hope would be that I would continue to just become wiser as I aged. Just become wiser as I age. Okay, beautiful. Uh, I, uh, I've talked about this living to at least 180 a number uh, pretty openly. And some people say, oh, that's just a fear of death. Right. But when I, I look really deeply at it, it's not based on fear. It's just based on passion and stuff that I, I think is fun. But if it wasn't fun anymore, I'd, I'd probably change my number. Right. Okay. Well, Joan, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. Your book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, has those eight feelings that you talked about. Uh, and there's great value to going through that list and just making sure, hey, which of those is in the driver's seat when you don't know about it? And it, it's interesting, even Ron Howard, you know, the famous director, he has a quote on the back of the book. So people at all walks uh, have gone through this process. And like you said, 90 seconds. I think it takes a little bit more than that to read the book. But it's it's fast stuff. And if your software's not working right, uh, it helps to fix your hardware so you can do the work faster. But a big part of performing better at what you do is this kind of work. So thanks for writing your book, John. Thank you. And thanks for having me, Dave. Susan, I... I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. I know it's a busy time for you. I think your book stands the the test of being truly evidence-based. Emotional agility is <laughs> worth reading for anyone who's dealing with pandemic stress right now. Uh, so if, if you're listening to the show and you're saying, wow, it's, it's a bit weird right now, there are some skills in here. Uh, you go to susandavid.com, which is uh, Susan's website, or you can buy her book. You guys don't know how to buy books. So I don't have to tell you how. And as always, if you purchase a book and you like it, just like you wouldn't ever order a cup of coffee without leaving a tip for your barista, you should never read a book without leaving a review. So go to Amazon and click a review. And if it deserves five stars, give it five. If it deserves one, give it one. But at least leave a review because tell me the truth, Susan. Do you look at your reviews? Do they help you shape your work? Uh, people's questions help shape the work. And of course, reviews, they, they help to get the word out to other people. And so that's meaningful to me like leaving a tip so if you guys are are enjoying susan's work or heck if you like this interview leave a review on itunes or you could just sit there and do some of those other dysfunctional behaviors we talked about before so either be a good person leave a review or be a bad person and don't leave a review we'll still love you <laughs> see you on the next episode <laughs> thank you you're listening to the human upgrade with dave asprey The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. 
Opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.